We're talking to Navid. Um, I found him on Facebook. Um, he runs uh, a polo club in the Czech Republic. Polo, for those of you who don't know, is when you ride around in horse, on horses in a big field and try to punch a ball into the opponent's goal. And uh, obviously, myself, having seen polo only played by the royal family in England, I was very curious about this. And uh, soon I found out that there is a lot of things about Navid. His uh, journey from Manchester to to the polo club in Prague has been a, a very interesting one. Um, and uh, filled with coincidences and random things that have really, really had a big impact on his life. And yeah, he, yeah, that guy can tell stories and check it out. And uh, also about the sponsors, guys. Um, Alfred.c said, that's where you find your job or in the app, the Alfred app. So if you're listening and you are miserable about your shitty job, then stop having a shitty job and get a great job on Alfred. And then, yeah, for your food, uh, never has it been more important to be healthy than exactly now. So the place for that is the old bar, Prague, uh, where you can get old meals, um, organic skir, and a lot of goodies with no nasty ingredients and nothing added. Most or anything actually is homemade there. And uh, yeah, it's a great place. Open during the week from 8.30 to 3, on Fridays to 1.30, and open on Saturday morning from 8.30 to 1.30. So try it or order from Walt or Bolt. Enjoy. Um, welcome to the bunker, Navid Gill. How are you today? Well, I'm very well. Thanks for the welcome, and I'm pleased to be here, and I hope that the listeners will really enjoy what we're about to say. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see that. Uh, I found found Navid on on um, on Facebook. Uh, Navid runs something called uh, Gil Polo, um, and I was very curious, um, having lived here in the Czech Republic for over a decade, uh that there is some guy here running a polo club uh, where you run around on horses and try and punch a ball into a goal, I assume. He will tell us more about that later. Um, I reached out and uh, we started communicating and, and the more we communicated, uh, the more I realized what a story Navid actually has. Um, and uh, yeah, I managed to convince him to to come here and, and share his story today and tell us about himself and a little bit about Polo. Um, is that, that's what you do today? You're a horse guy. Today I'm primarily a horse guy, yes. So Polo is my thing. It's uh, something that I do most every day of the week, mm. uh, especially on the weekends where most people come to train. And have you been, like today, have you been to the staples and, and shoveled some shit and stuff? <laughs> well, uh, that's really good you, you said that, Elmer. I haven't shoveled any shit from the stables, from the horses, but I have uh, been shoveling some other shit today, for yeah. sure. Yes. But do you, 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 you have staples with a lot of horses? I mean, I see on your, your Facebook that, the, that you're always riding and training and... Well, of course, there's um, 
there is the, the, the largest aspect of my life, uh, apart from my children, uh, is the polo mm. that I run, the polo club that I run. Mm. And the club was started in 2008 mm. simply as a name, mm. uh, registered in 2008. It was an idea uh, that had been building inside of me mm. that I wanted to execute on for a long time. And... Today, uh, the club is working, it's running, it has horses, it mm -hmm. has members uh, who are coming to train there regularly. Who, who shovels the shit then? Well, luckily, the, uh, uh, the horses have a guy who shovels the shit for them and for me. Yeah. Um, although... Uh, I have shoveled it. I don't. Uh, I don't care. You don't shy away from that. Uh, um, no. If it's uh, you know, that's life, right? When yeah. there's shit to deal with, you deal with it. Yeah. I. I actually wanted to ask you off air, but I can just as well ask you now. I, I. Is it possible that I could come and work there in the weekends and just do you know shovel shit and feed the horses and all that stuff? I think that it's very possible. Uh, that would indeed. Be great. In fact, we'd welcome you to come and shovel some shit at the weekend. Yeah, I would love to because I, I used to um, I used to go to a farm and back in Iceland when I was a boy and, and yeah, I kind of miss being around animals and, and horses and cows and sheep and, and stuff like that. So I I will take you up on that offer. It's not an offer. <laughs> Just come. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got an extra job now. Um so yeah, I mean as I said, I, I kind of, when I tracked back with you, um, backwards from the polo in a way, then I, yeah, I realized that always that there is some, somehow more and more about you. Um, and uh, if you tell me a little bit, you know, where did it all start? Where, where you know, where are you born and, and, and what's the background of the family? Well, originally... Um, what I wanted to talk about was only polo, yeah, dear I listeners. Know. But uh, Alma persuaded me to talk a little bit more about a lot of things because although polo was interesting for him, he's more about the individual and what created that individual. Mm. So uh, we're going to go through that now. And um, he's asked me point blank. So let's just start from the beginning. Um, my parents emigrated from Pakistan. Mm. My father came to the UK in 1960 mm. uh, as a, an optician. Mm. That was his profession. And in those days, in, in the 60s, in the UK, mm. immigrants uh, from the former colonial countries of the British Empire were being invited to come and do jobs that locals didn't want to do anymore. Mm. or um, let's say politely they felt that they needed to move to a higher level of work. Mm. And he came, he wanted to practice being an optician. Unfortunately, he was told that his qualification wasn't acceptable in the UK at that time. Now, he came alone. He came without my mother, uh, who was left to look after two uh, older brothers and two older sisters. And I wasn't born then, um, so I and I, I I don't know what their life was like there, um, and what kind of uh, naughty behavior they did. But eventually, uh, my father, who the the idea being that he would bring his 
family over waited three years. He, he waited three years because he wanted to establish himself. He was embarrassed to tell my mother mm. that uh, indeed he wasn't working as an optician, mm. but he needed some kind of financial base to invite them with. So uh, he got off his uh, uh, off the sofa, so to speak, and started selling um, anything and everything that he could on a market stall, literally, mm. and built a business within three years, which allowed him to pay for the passage of my mum and uh, my older brothers and sisters. And so they came over. And they um, probably had a good time because, uh, and, and I guess my, my father was missing my mum because within about a year I was born. <laughs> and uh, I was the first child born to my father in the UK. Mm. And there's a lot of um, cultural emphasis on boys in the Asian world, mm, mm. right? So this was a great moment, an auspicious moment, another son, so three sons. Mm. And uh, that gave rise to my name, Naveed, which is indeed, uh, as Alma has uh, understood, a Farsi name, an Iranian name, and it means good news, in case he didn't know. Uh -huh. So that is the meaning of, of the name Naveed. It mm. means good news. My, my, my Iranian friend that has the same name spelled slightly differently, his parents called him the Golden Dick. <laughs> I don't know why, but he, he tells everyone who wants to hear. Uh, my mother actually called me. So what is interesting about my parents... For you, Elmar, is that um, my father married into aristocracy. Uh -huh. Okay, so he was a poor guy, married a rich lady, mm. and uh, that marriage wasn't very welcome from the side of my mother's family. But anyway, they've uh, somehow managed to weather that storm and gone through life, and they uh, met one another again, of course, in the UK. And there was a lot of um, you know, we don't have enough time on this interview to talk about their history, their story, mm. which would be, which I, I found out. Um, and I'll move on to that later about how I found out uh, about their story, a little bit about their story. So uh, there I am. I've been born. It's um, a long time ago. I don't even want to mention the number. <laughs> it's so long ago. And, uh, you know, life is good. Everybody's happy. Um Business is going well for my father. I was actually born, sorry, born in the city of Manchester. Mm. And my parents actually lived in Manchester and they lived in uh in 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 a in a, in a place um with they were very frugal. They didn't show their money. They just lived with other people and they lived amongst actually uh, a section of the community which were other working class mm. people, Irish people, Jewish people, mm. uh, Asian, other Asian people. And they were quite happy. I remember playing on the street, literally playing on the street with the neighbors and kicking around a football when I was four. And then um, when I was about seven, my eldest brother, who uh, for some reason he decided that uh, the wealth my father had generated was not shown mm. 
by the house we lived in. So he decided to buy, an, without actually telling my father, he went and he bought a new house uh -huh. outside of Manchester okay. in a very, uh, let's call it, um, well-to-do area. Mm. So technically we lived outside of Manchester mm. from the age of, I, from the age of seven I lived outside of Manchester or in the entire family. And we moved to a huge house. So from a little two up, two down, mm. we suddenly moved into a 15-room house. Mm -hmm. uh, mom, neither of my parents were very happy, mm. uh, not because of the house, but because they felt they left their friends and their community behind. The roots, yeah. You know, and they were just not there. And um, there we were, we were, and it brings, you know, another point. So we went from this little... This world of uh, other immigrants mm. to uh, we were the only non-white family mm. around. And how how all. was that in in Manchester? How how was that at that time? You know. Well, we were not in Manchester then. So what I'm saying is that outside of Manchester, yeah. where people were already familiar with uh, Afro-Caribbean people, African people, mm. uh, Pakistani, Asians, Chinese, um, whatever. Mm. Suddenly we were in a, a village, really. And uh, in the beginning, we were... Um, uh, people used to look at us, not in a bad way, I would say, but just, uh, wow, mm. what's that? Who's <laughs> that? You know, what's going on? And the racism that I later experienced, I didn't experience it then. Mm. So that those those days in the UK at that time, uh, whilst we were different, um, everybody in that village, I call it a village, um, had money. Mm. Okay, middle upper class, upper class. Mm. Uh, to give you the flavour of of that village, there were only two car companies in the village one was Rolls one was Ferrari uh -huh. right okay. <laughs> these were the only two car, uh -huh. car garages in the village at that time but uh, the people you know were very friendly they were they were welcoming and um, when they found out what my mother could cook they suddenly started knocking on the door they had never eaten this kind of food and uh, actually we used to have uh, regular family visits from the police sergeant who would say, oh, just checking, oh, is that something you're cooking there? <laughs> Could I have some of that food? Uh, and I'll always remember Sergeant Radley. He was a short, jolly, fat... Who <laughs> loved food. St stereotypical, as you would call, policeman who was actually doing his job, looking after the community, mm. uh, speaking to them, but enjoying his food um, with, uh, with great pleasure at our house. And opposite uh, our house was a Catholic church, actually. Mm. Now, my father, he was a very religious man. Mm. Uh, his religion was everything to him, and it meant uh, more than the, the money. In, in fact, the money side of things was only a means for him to uh, bring his family to mm. the country. And his main goal was uh, to keep us all on the right side of God, right? And... Uh, to spread the word of God. And he actually was instrumental in building one of the first mosques in Manchester. That's what, uh -huh. he, what he's uh, remembered for. And um, what's interesting is that he had a very open mind 
relig- open religious mind. And that's a good point for people to understand when we talk about Muslims today. People seem to think that they're very blinkered and they have one-track mind and they don't see other religions. And my father was very open. He explained a lot of things to me. He explained uh, how uh, all of the religions were important, equally as important. And so his one of his best friends was the, was the priest from the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would have constant debates. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, in in terms of their religion. Now, the Catholicism is very similar to uh, Islam culturally, which is it's about family, mm. right? And your family's important. And so that's why they got on, mm. you know, because they both said, yeah, family's they important. They shared the values. They had some shared values, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, children are important. Mm. Uh, family's important. Respect for your parents is important. And um, that relationship, uh, one of the nice things that it culminated in was when my elder sister got married, that priest uh, knocked on our door and asked to remarry my <laughs> eldest sister in his Catholic church, uh-huh. um, which, you know, is amazing. It's yeah. absolutely, it's a wonderful story. So she had two weddings, the Islamic wedding, or three, actually, the civil wedding, the Islamic wedding, and then a kind of semi-Catholic wedding. Um, And, you know, if you know anything about Asian culture, uh, you know that those weddings are big, Mm. right? So 300 people arrived and filled up the church, Uh which was more than he got any weekend. What you're describing now, Navid, is a very kind of a tolerant, open-minded... Yeah. um, non-discriminatory situation in a way Um, I mean you you said for example with terms of of you being the only white people in the in the village or on the street then it doesn't seem to have been harming you somehow right uh, let me correct. We weren't the only white people. We were the only brown people. Yeah, sorry, only non-white people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We were the only brown people in the village. Yeah. Um, in No, we were more of a curiosity at that time mm-hmm. for that particular type of uh, part of society, mm. right? So there's always, um, there's always uh, acceptance. So... Yeah, racism is a very uh, difficult subject to deal mm. with, right? And racism and prejudice and uh, all, all of the biases that people have. But, of course, um, there's a surface uh, which people accept you, mm. right? And you seem to be welcome, mm. okay? And then you have to understand that it's up to a certain point. Yeah, there's a roof, right? Or a ceiling. A ceiling mm. of... A, acceptance and Mm. but i think that's true of almost any culture that Mm. i know about um so in those those times we didn't call it uh, racism we used to call it color prejudice Mm -hmm. right people Mm -hmm. against a specific color uh, as opposed to against a specific race of people Mm. and yeah we we knew that we would never be fully accepted and Mm. these uh so w- when you when you're dealing I think you've l- reached a very good point which uh which you're trying to dig out of me which is uh what is it like to be uh 
a first generation, okay? Mm. Um, and it's very difficult. I, I think for any first generation born children mm. of any immigrant family, they have the worst time. Mm. They, they don't, uh, they have their parents talking about their old values constantly. Mm. And they have the society around them saying, we don't share those values. Mm. We have different values. Mm. And if you want to be part of us, you have to change your values and join us and join. So this paradox or this contradiction starts to happen where uh, the children are confused. Right? Stop listening to the most important people in your life and start listening to us. Right. Mm. So it gets, uh, and it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's difficult for parents to understand why. Mm. And it's difficult for the first generation to understand what's going on around them. I'll just put on the light so I see my paper. I'm getting blind. Okay. So that so that sets up, uh, you know, kind of a very difficult situation for people. Mm. Conflicting. It's just interest. Mm. Yeah, confl mm. an mm. a conflict of interest, basically. But what you said about, like, it's interesting, like, with... Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, what we see on the news is only what they decide to show us, and we don't see the real good stories because that doesn't serve the same purpose. But what you described, for example, with your father and that Catholic priest, uh, I don't think that we hear a lot about this today. In today's news, you know, that we hear about the, the tolerance between these two religions that probably still exists, though, but we... You know, I don't know. Do you think that this is, has disappeared, or or do we? I think that it has never disappeared, and I think that in the last, I don't think I know, mm. right? So what I'll say is that within the last twenty years that I've seen, with a very large swing of people to the right, mm. both in politics and at a local level. Mm. Uh, it brings intolerance, okay, mm -hmm. and it brings and the. I don't want to have a whole dialogue about politics, but what I will say is that, in order for politicians to be elected, they need a platform. Mm -hmm. They will choose a platform, and if that platform happens to be, uh, as it has been in the last four years in the UK, uh, get out all of the people taking our jobs, and that's why we should have Brexit. Then, mm -hmm. then they'll choose a platform. And that platform has been going on for the last 20 years. So if you look at the West, mm. and I, I hate these divisions, West and East, but there is a division in terms of culture and in terms of religion mm. uh, and in terms of politics. And we can argue all day about whether one is better than the other, but that's not my point. My point is that in the last 20 years, if you look at the global conflicts, that have been coming on board. So you have from from the start of the invasion of Afghanistan by the mm. Russians to the Americans saying we need to invade to Iran, uh, I beg your pardon, to Iraq, Iraq mm. and uh, and so on and so on and so on. So in order to fuel that war machine, you need to have an enemy, right? Mm. And the enemy is Islam and its radicals. And right. of course, every every major religion that I know of has a radical has yeah. a, has an extreme part to it but mm. it's very small 
and just as we know today that in uh, or in in, in the past uh, a very small part a very radical part of the german nation was run by a small minority mm. um it wasn't reflective of the entire german nation they no. were they weren't all nazis and of course not all muslims are, uh, are terrorists and not all catholics uh, you know in the 70s uh, it was the catholics uh from ireland who were considered to be terrorists yeah. right and everybody was afraid of the irish mm. in the uk you you walked very carefully mm. and you looked at, you were told to look at any baggage left on a train station mm. Uh, because unfortunately this conflict was taking place the mm. uh, irish republican army was emphasizing its right to have a free uh, northern ireland yeah and then it changed so this narrative has changed and but in general you're right um there are more good stories than there are bad stories mm. we just don't hear about them no and i think also what i what i find interesting is that i i um you know like in in all fairness then you you can't call one thing a terrorism and then the other thing a war because if if the people that we we are attacking and then when i say we it's us in in the western countries and our governments and the leaders that we vote they they have decided that they need to invade countries to i don't know get their raw materials or or to somehow i don't know beat them into submission and uh, and those countries usually have been crippled um militarily and uh, f- financially so that they were blocked from having the same resource if if there if there would be an attack by a military of a foreign nation to my hometown and it would kill my parents my my sister and my my nephews i i would go and revenge but i don't have a tank i don't have a plane i don't have missiles what do i have i have myself of course if you kill 10 people you're going to make 100,000 people angry and i think this for me this is very often kind of missing in this because i i don't even yeah the, what we have chosen to call terrorism is, for me is just revenge for whatever we have done you know and 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 we're asking for it in a way it might sound bad to someone who has lost someone through this but this is how i see it anyway we yeah we didn't want to i didn't want to go into that too much but so growing up in Manchester, what which team did you support? Football. Yeah, so football. Um, Don't say city. <laughs> well, let's talk about football because you know I love football and I grew up in a city which loves football. Mm. And my, uh, I have two older brothers, or I, I had two older brothers, um, but the, the the eldest who really didn't do any sports at all. Mm. And then the second eldest, and he was mad about football, mm. completely mad. And when I was uh, seven or eight, I don't remember exactly when, um, he took me to my first football match. Mm. And this will, uh, to the listeners out there now, you can I will give away my age uh, when they hear this story. But I remember it vividly. I went to Old Trafford. Uh, there were thousands of people around me, thousands and thousands. I'd never seen so many people. And Manchester United were welcoming a new player. His name was Louis Macari. Uh-huh. And uh, Louis Macari was, uh, you know, just being brought into the team. From st- from Stoke City, I think, or something like that. Lou Macari. I don't, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember. No. I don't remember now. Um, 
But I remember the fickleness of the supporters, right? So, you know, they were like, I was listening to them. And there, were, there, were, there was one football supporter who completely amazed me. He was an old man, and he was rolling a cigarette in one hand, mm. and he never missed a second of that game. So he rolled it, the tobacco, the paper, mm. and I was just, wow. <laughs> and then I was listening to the other supporters, and, they were, and Louis McCarry was not having a good game, mm. okay? Debut, not having a good game, and the usual... Why did we get him? He's useless. Yeah, yeah. Then he scores a goal. I it's, told it's, you. it's a game against West Ham, 2-2, two, 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 I think. <laughs> it's 1973. <laughs> it was a bit before then, actually. Yeah. yeah. Great. Um, but he scored. But he scored, and suddenly, well, I told you, that's why we got him. You know? Yeah, He's yeah, brilliant. and everybody loved it. Yeah. It's a very qu- it's, yeah. It's thin line between love yeah. and hate in football. Exactly. In the stands. Yeah, and so back to your other question, who do I support at that time? I didn't support United because I was a bit disappointed by the, the, the way the supporters behaved so quickly, right? Mm. And my school, my primary school, happened to have a visit from uh, the goalkeeper of Manchester City, Joe mm. Corrigan. Mm-hmm. So... We were impressed. Joe came, Joe visited us, Joe played football with us, Joe told us to score goals against him. So we were all in love with Manchester City at that time. And that football is an interesting, and it kind of cuts back to something else. So I was a big man, Manchester City fan for a long time. Mm. And, and then in the 80s, uh, Argentina went to war. Mm. with the UK, or the UK went to war with Argentina in the Falklands. And mm. there was uh, a team, a team called Tottenham Hotspur, which decided to take two Argentine players. And they were vilified. And their position was, this about football, it's not about politics. What was uh, Ossi Artiles and Ossi Ardiles, Ricky Villa? Ricky Villa, exactly. Mm. And I'm, o- I'm old also, you know. <laughs> so that really impressed me. Mm. So uh, ever since then, I'm a Spurs fan. They were rebels. They were rebels of the day. No, they were doing something which I felt was right. You Mm. know, they they felt that the politics shouldn't interfere with the sport, and Mm. I agree with that. I think it's it doesn't have a place in sport. Mm. Um, To a certain extent, it doesn't, and we can talk about taking the knee in American football. And sometimes you need to take a stand Mm. in your sport Mm. to show. Not to make a political statement, but to make a, let's say, human statement. Mm. That, you know, something is wrong with the way that we're treating people. Mm. And we, we, we should, we're trying to uh, bring your attention to that by doing this. Mm. And I think that's, you know, people can say it's political or not. Mm. So that's football. I've always been in touch with that football. And then there's, of course, the other thing that I love, which is rugby. Um, and I guess... Uh, you want me to get back to the school? Yeah, uh, but but, right. uh, but maybe actually because, you know, what, what about horses? Were horses already there, part of your life somehow? Well, horses um, were not in my life, okay? Mm. So a tragedy, a tragic, a tragic uh, thing happened in 1973. Both mm. my parents were killed in a car accident at the same time. And you are, um, what, what age are you? I was nine years uh-huh. old. And... Um, of course, the whole family was, was affected. I had a very peculiar position in my family because I had four older siblings and four younger siblings, mm. and I was in the middle. And um, uh, 
so there were two groups that were consoling one another and I was just in the middle of both of them, you know, without really getting anything from either side. Mm. Uh, that's what I remember because uh, I was asking my older brothers and sisters what's happened because it was on the news and they just switched off the television. And I and I was asking what's happened and they said, no, 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 you can't see the news. And I knew something had happened, something bad had happened. And... Uh, my younger sisters were too young to understand that something bad had happened. Um, so that uh, meant, of course, no horses because our life changed dramatically, right? Well, there was, you know, so, of course, no one at that time expects this kind of thing to happen right so mm. my dad had made no provisions mm -hmm. no will no nothing and um and the tax people don't care so they came looking for their share of uh, tax payments um we had a, a difficult period of time because actually my oldest brother the eldest person in the family at that time was only 21 mm. right so the state was asking to take me and my younger sisters into the state, into... Uh, Some custody. In, into a home, children's yeah. home, right? And, um, and that happened for a while. Mm. Um, and we were very lucky. I, I count myself very lucky. My brother managed to prove to the state that he had enough money to look after us, and he explained to them that it was better for the state and cheaper if we stayed together mm. um, rather than the state paying for five kids. And, uh, of course, the idea from the state was that we would always split up as well and send to different homes. Mm. Um, my eldest sister had already uh, got married before then, as I mentioned earlier, so she wasn't in, she wasn't at home. In the household. She yeah. wasn't in the household. She yeah. had to, uh, or she couldn't come back. Um, so there's uh, my oldest brother trying to run the business, trying to recover the business. Um, my other uh, other older sister at university, my other brother at university, and uh, there's me and four sisters. And um, so that's a funny story for you. So the police came with the social workers, um, and my brother wasn't at home, mm. and they banged on the door and asked me to open the door. Right, and I refused to open that door for mm. about three hours, mm. and uh, they, they insisted, "You can't refuse." You know, with the police, you have to come with us. And so finally, I thought, "Well, okay, I should uh, listen to them." Mm. And they took us away to this children's home, and we spent some time there. Until all of this, I don't want to go into too many details, mm. but it was a funny um, thing that happened in that children's home. Right, mm. but what is important for the listeners to understand is that one of the most important things happened to me in that children's home. Mm. As I met with the other children, my assumption was that their parents had died as, as well. well. Mm -hmm. And 80% of the children in that home mm. had parents. Mm -hmm. And that just hit me and it's something which completely changed my life that I couldn't imagine that there were people who didn't want to have their kids. Yeah. Mm. And 
there is a phrase, there's always someone worse off than you. And that mm. day I learned the meaning mm. of that, mm. really. Mm. That I, I just could not understand, looking at my parents, that anybody would have parents who mm. wouldn't want their kids. And I was shocked. Um, so, so, so a good thing came from being in the children's home, right? But, as a, but still, Navid, as a nine-year-old, do you, how do you process this? I mean, do you... I mean, I know it's probably not easy to to talk about it, and but do you understand that they're they're not coming back at that time? You know, um, I didn't process it. Mm. Okay, uh, the truth is, I didn't process it, and I didn't accept it for mm. for at least twenty years. Uh huh. That that is the truth. It took me twenty years to accept that uh, they weren't coming back. Mm -hmm. um, that's how it affected me. It affected each member differently. Mm. Um, the older, older, the eldest brother was probably um, too busy just trying to keep things together to think about it too much. Mm. Uh, my eldest sister was already married, so she she couldn't had her uh, own own things too yeah, uh, and the other two the other ones they were very bitter mm. right it changed them completely mm. uh to we hate god we hate everybody why mm. did this happen to us and they're still like that today mm -hmm. for me it was um it was a blank i just blanked it mm -hmm. just pretended that it had happened didn't talk to people about it in fact, I used to lie when people used to talk, when my friends used to talk, they didn't know me very well about their parents. I'd say, oh, I'm going home to my mum and dad too. Mm -hmm. um, and I just couldn't couldn't uh, believe it in a way. And I didn't want to believe it because uh, I didn't want my younger sisters to understand it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that comes across in the way that I want it to, but... It was very. Um, you want to try to protect them, or yeah, or? of course. My job, my job was always has always been to protect them, to take care of them. Mm. Um, something which uh, my father pushed into me a lot, and um, and I and I continued to do that, and mm. I still do, I think, although they don't need it so much anymore. <laughs> but but how was the household where the head of the family is twenty one year old and runs a business? Also. Yeah, so that was pretty funny days, right? So the household was uh, quite, um, from an, a certain perspective, quite hilarious. It mm -hmm. was comedic, mm -hmm. right? Uh, my brother, I think, that, so when we when we got back from the children's home and he had no idea how to feed us, <laughs> right? He, he didn't have a clue. I guess the policeman never came for dinner again. No. Mm -hmm. um, so the state, they... Um, they gave us social workers who would come and cook, mm -hmm. and we didn't like their cooking. <laughs> so we hatched a plan to get rid of them, right? Me and my sisters, we would just complain every day about how they were horrible and nasty mm. and uh, until we got rid of them. And my brother said, okay, so, you know, what are you going to do? I said, well, just give me money and I'll, I'll figure it out. Mm. And uh, so being naive, like he was as well in a certain way, you know, he just gave me um, cash and said, go buy supper when you get home from school. And I went and I bought 
cakes for everybody every day. We just got cream cakes. That sounds good. You know, we, we, we just, I just go and shop and buy cream cakes. And then he'd come home and say, what did you eat? And we'd say, fish and chips. <laughs> um, and, and then he figured out that that wasn't working. And then he, uh, tried, he tried nannies. He tried a living couple. We, we managed to get rid of everything, every, all of them um, over time with a, with a big effort. And then his final uh, effort was uh, actually to get married himself and hope that his wife would uh, manage. Sort out the mess. But it was too late, you know. We'd already learned how to manage ourselves. Mm. And um, I'd already set up a routine with my sisters uh, about cleaning and uh, going to how we would get to school. Mm. And so we had this routine. Mm. And this routine gave us um, security, right, safety. Mm. So yeah. changing it was difficult. Yeah. Um but, you know, the girls would uh, clean inside the house. I would clean outside the house. I'd do the hard labor outside, cleaning yards, gardens, whatever. Mm. Uh, they would wash. Um, but, you know, and rarely did we buy fish and chips with the money in my yeah, it was brother. Cakes. Was. Just cakes, chocolate. That sounds uh, good. It was great fun. But how, how, and how did you do with the, because I know that, you know, later on you have a, we were kind of moving into that soon though, um, your corporate career. I mean, I guess you took some education and, and I mean, you were doing kind of fine in, in a way. I mean, it, this didn't yeah. mess you up completely or put so you off track. I think the answer to your question is uh, three things that my father told me, mm. which uh, as I was growing up, I, I, I've never forgotten. And I and I think that it came out of his experience in life, right? And what the first thing that he told me was, "A man is what he does, not what he says." Mm. And he really asked me to understand that when mm. I was when I was at a young age. The second thing he told me was, um, "When are you rich?" And you know, I said, "Well, I don't know when you've got money." And I got this. Actually, I got smacked on the back of the head. Mm. And he said, "No, you're rich when you can eat every day." Anything after that is a luxury. Mm. So, you know, that was another good point he made. And then the third thing he told me was, he said, uh, that, you know, you can lose everything in this world except what's inside your head. Mm. Study, mm. learn, have knowledge. They can take everything. They can strip you of everything, but they can't strip what's inside your head. Mm. So this kind of dynamic of education um, not only came from him, but it's a very strong age or cultural thing mm. as well to study. Uh, both uh, my older brother and sister were at university. I actually, uh, it's funny, you, you uh, kind of segued into it because um, there was no choice but for me to go to university, right? Mm. Uh, as, a, as a mechanism to live, survive. Mm. And my... Uh, eldest sister but second eldest sister she was uh, pretty good pretty good academically she was studying law and I wanted to be a lawyer mm. like her mm. um, so at 16 I told her I wanted to do law uh, the UK system at that time was you did your O levels and then you did A levels and your A levels pretty much decided your career mm. I was very good in the arts without a doubt my biggest academic skills were in the arts mm. and my sister just turned around and said you will not do law you will do science uh-huh and she decided for me so i ended up doing maths physics and chemistry and uh 
decided to do physics. Mm-hmm. I continued to do physics at university, and uh, that took me forward into my work career. Um, part of the yes, part of the other thing that I studied at university. Um, uh, so the undergraduate degree, and then uh, the oil industry was booming mm. at that time. Uh, mm. I was at Aberdeen in, in Aberdeen in Scotland, studying yeah. in Scotland. Yeah, and so. You know, it was natural to think about going into the oil industry. Um, so I did this postgraduate in offshore engineering, and uh, unfortunately, the oil industry didn't go boom the year that I graduated. Mm. It went bust. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there we were, 20 of us. We, we couldn't get a job, mm. uh, at least in Scotland. There mm. were plenty of jobs going in, in England. Mm. Um but I wanted to stay in Scotland. I love Scotland. I love. I just loved uh, Scotland. In, in, I'll tell you a funny story about Scotland, um, so that you understand about prejudice and racism. Mm. Okay. In England, even though I grew up in England, everybody always looked first at my colour. Mm. In Scotland, everybody heard me first, mm-hmm. and they would always say, "Oh, you're English," mm-hmm. not because of my color obviously Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. because of my accent Mm -hmm. so that's very important for people to understand how how scottish people or people outside of england think they 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 think more with their ears right Mm. than they do with their eyes yeah um so that was a nice kind of change and uh being in scotland uh again you felt I, more welcome there yeah and also you know i have to be honest uh, a bit egotistical i was exotic right mm. there wasn't many of me in scotland so uh, i had quite a nice uh, time mm-hmm. um being an exotic person and uh, lots of people wanted to get to know me mm-hmm. uh, it was nice so i wanted to stay in scotland I couldn't. I had to move uh, to England to get a job, and I ended up working for Xerox Corporation. Mm. And uh, I spent 12 years. I won't talk about what went on at Xerox. It would just take too long. But the 12 years um, culminated uh, in me ending up in the Czech Republic in 1996. Yeah, and you come here, you kind of, because, you know, when I was Googling you and, and uh, then you kind of come when, when let's say, the, the uh, how do you say it, like the communication industry here is being kind of liberated from post-communism. And you, you go into that, you go into internet services and... Yeah, so I, I, the job that I did primarily for Xerox was technical. Mm and was around software and communications. Mm. And over 12 years, of course, it became less technical and it became more managerial. Mm. Um, it ended up with me being uh, here in the Czech Republic uh, from 96, March 96 to uh, December 98. Mm. Then I had two years in Slovenia, and uh, this was practically four years out of the UK, and I, I felt it was time to do two things. One was to go back to the UK, mm. and the second thing um, was to leave Xerox completely. Mm. There is a moment in time which everybody must decide when they work in a corporate mm. um, 
and it's usually around the 10 to 12 year mark. If you continue to work for a corporate after that, you'll be locked in. and you You're will, in for life. Yeah, you're locked in. You're in for life because you, you've got too much invested in that. Mm. And uh, I just didn't want to. I was already feeling that I wanted to change my direction, my career. I wanted to go back. So I started looking for a job in the telecommunications industry. Mm. And uh, part of that, there's a few funny stories around how I ended up back in Prague from Ljubljana. But I ended up becoming the CEO of a telco, mm. telecommunications company, internet company. Mm. And um, and it's right, as you say, just as the market uh, was opening up, so there were a lot of challenges, right? Mm. The, the challenges were the regulatory framework, mm. which is very boring for a lot of people, but just imagine that, you know, every almost every country goes through it where there was a monopoly uh, who owns everything and had all the clients and suddenly mm. they're told that they have to let them go and that there has have to be to open everything up. And yeah, yeah. Uh, and they're very upset and they do lots of things and oh, we could we could talk for days on, mm. on, on, on all of what they did. Um, and then I was fortunate uh, during all of this time, Alma, that I had uh, met a woman, a Czech mm. woman in 96. And uh, we were t- still together when we came back to Prague. Mm. And part of the reason why I came back to Prague was because of her. Mm. And um, we get married in 2001 mm. because we're expecting our first child. Mm. And... Uh, I'm a little bit conservative in that regard. I wanted to be married if we had a child. Mm. So we got married. Um, some might say after the, the cows have already left the stables. But anyway, we, yeah. we, we, we were married. And we had our first son in 2001. And then uh, we were expecting another child in 2008. Mm. And um, that... Uh, meant uh, um, my wife, ex-wife, unfortunately, or well, sadly, and these things happen to all, to, to, to all of us sometimes, um, needed to, to, to lie flat to have that child, mm. right? Oh, there was a high risk of losing the baby. Mm. And at the same time, again, I was sick of the corporate world, right? So seven years on doing another thing for another big corporate and suddenly there's a decision to make do i stay at home mm. give everything up and and make sure my wife can have our baby or do i continue and it really wasn't a decision that took very long to take mm. um quit stayed at home spent a year out of the world and uh I, I and I knew I knew I didn't want to go back into into an office mm. and run a company with hundreds of employees and mm. talk to ministers and deal with politics again. And I wanted to do something. Mm. I wanted to do something for myself, um, and I wanted to do something different, mm. right? And you asked earlier on about horses. How did I get to horses? And the horses were never there in my early life no okay no there was no time there was no money to have mm. horses because of the situation 
But during one of my uh, relationships, uh, I'm, I had a relationship with a with a lovely English girl, and she could ride. She wanted mm-hmm. to ride, and so we happened to go on a holiday to Ireland uh, about twenty five years ago, thirty years ago now. My mm. God, time mm-hmm. is flying, and she wanted to ride, and I said, "Sean, go riding. Let's go." And we found the stables, and you know we're in we're we're in we're in Ireland, right? And uh, at that time, the Irish um, and indeed uh, the way people spoke was quite different today, yeah. right? So we get to the stables, and the Irish guy who owns the stables, you know, he sees only one client. He wants to make more money, mm. and he looks at me and he says, "You you don't ride," and I said, "No," he said. I, I don't know if I should say this, but he literally said he asked me if I was gay. <laughs> right? This was this you couldn't do that today, right? No. But he he basically just said, oh, "Are you gay? You don't write." And I, said, <laughs> I just looked at him and said, well, I really don't understand, uh, uh, you know, how that works. But uh, no, I've just never ridden a horse. You know, I mm. never had time for that. And he said, "Well, get on a horse." You know. And I said, okay. <laughs> and he brought out the the biggest horse I've ever seen. Mm. And um, not knowing anything then about horses, I thought, wow. You had never been on a horse before? Never. I'd not never even been. a pony in a certain... Nothing, a nothing, never. Theme park or anything? No, nothing. So he brings out this huge horse. And mm. it was so big, I had to get on a tractor tire to get on it. Uh-huh. But I'm looking down at my girlfriend feeling like a king. I'm like, look, see, I got a bigger horse, you know. And this Irish guy, his name is Val O'Connor. And he was quite a famous Irish jockey, actually. Mm-hmm. Steeplechase jockey. He he just looked at me and said, you, you have no idea of horses, do you? And I said, no. no. And he said, the bigger they are, the slower they are. That's why you got that horse, right? It's <laughs> big. Just get on it. And um, so I got on it, and you know, we walked. We I, he walked with me. My girlfriend went off. You know, ha ha ha! I can write. And he he did this hour, and he said, uh, "Sure, you're in pain. You're in lots of pain. I can see you're in pain. You won't be coming tomorrow." And of course, he punched every emotional button that I had. You know, at that age, and I was like, "No, oh, I'll, I'll be back tomorrow." And, you know, he achieved uh, what he wanted, which was to get more money out of me. So mm. I came back the next day, uh, had another lesson with him. And it wasn't a walk, only it wasn't a walk this time. Mm. It was, uh, we went walking, and then he did this trot I'd never done. Mm. And then he started to go a little faster. And my horse just followed him. And then he just went flat out full speed. Mm. And the horse went I just literally was holding onto the horse, mm. and a, a hedge was coming up, you know. And uh, he was in front. He said, "Oh, don't worry, I'll stop your horse. Mm. I'll reach for it." it and then he just looked at me. And said, I can't stop your horse, and my horse just went past his horse. And I was thinking, I'm going to kill him. I'm really going to kill him. If I survive this, I'll kill him. And um, I, I had no idea what that horse would do. Mm. whether it would stop, whether or it would jump, jump yeah. or just go through. Mm. And it just stopped. Mm. It literally stopped, which he knew was going to happen, yeah. right? He knew his horse. 
And you can imagine there was a lot of screaming and shouting from me when he caught up to me. And he said, I, I, I'll explain you everything when we get back. And we came back to the stables and he said, you've done everything on a horse that you would have paid hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds in England to know to do, to find out you don't like riding. Mm -hmm. Now, do you like riding? And I looked at him and said, actually, I, I, apart from the fact I nearly died, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Mm. And he said, there you go, I've saved you shitloads of money. And I went back and I, I just uh, got the bug and I just went crazy. I rode every single day. In fact, even the local stables were complaining that no one should ride that much, that no one can ride that much. Uh -huh. But I was determined to um, get as good as my girlfriend, which mm. meant she'd been riding for, for a long time as a kid. You know, she'd done a lot. But the only way for me to get to that level was uh, almost every single day mm. of pain for mm. a year. Mm. Um, but within a year, uh, I was pretty much uh, the equivalent of seven years of riding, right? Most people who do riding or any kind of hobby sport, they go once a week. Mm. So, you, you know, you do one hour a week. If you want to be good at anything, you don't do it one hour a week. No. Right? So... Um, That's why all my podcasts are at least two hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, but so wait, so so but, but and this is thirty years ago. I mean, so you yeah, and you keep horses kind of on the side as a hobby. Uh, so throughout, the, yeah. So the horses uh, I did now and again, but I was too focused. You know, when I do something, I want to do it, or um, I I just. Either I, I'm a, either zero or a hundred percent, right? Like mm. with the learning to ride, it was either do it well or don't do it. So if I'm going to be a CEO, I do it well or I don't do it, mm. right? And uh, even during that time, my ex-wife was asking us to get horses, and I said I don't really no time. Mm. But after a couple of years, she actually persuaded me to get a few horses. So I bought uh, two jumping horses, and I bought uh, w what is my still my horse today, the love of my one of the loves of my life uh, is an Arab horse. Mm. And um, so we did this hobby riding, hobby jumping, and um, and then one day, a, a friend of mine, an American friend of mine. So he was in a jumping competition, right? He was a good show jumper. He'd been jumping around the world. He was an Olymp even done Olympic. Show jumping is just for the untrained ear. That's when the, the, the horse is jumping over fences and stuff. Right. So it's not outdoor cross-country style. Mm. It's in the arena. You're yep. just jumping around in the arena. And uh, I came to his competition. I And... You know, he, he had some really expensive horses, right? I mean, he did top-level stuff. Mm. And there he was in my competition for basic amateurs. And I looked at him. And I don't, you know, for the listeners out there, when you do a show jumping competition, usually there's a lot of people involved, right? You're in a big queue. You wait hours. And it takes literally 65 seconds to do your course. And you're mm. either in or you're out. So you mm. waited three or four hours to to sit on a horse for 70 seconds and this is uh, kind of why i think that you know show jumping is maybe even more expensive than polo if people want to talk about the cost of polo which i'm sure alma will ask me later but anyway so there is uh, my friend and i'm looking at him and, and i'm complaining i said you brought your jumping horses to this competition mm -hmm. and they can jump double 
of my horses. Mm. You know? That's really unfair. Mm. I mean, it's like breakfast for you. And he started to smile. He said, are you, are you pissed off now? And I said, yeah, I'm really pissed off. Mm. And he said, uh, okay, then what about polo? And I said, well, <laughs> okay, I've known you 10 years. You've never mentioned polo. What, what the hell do you know about polo? And he said, uh, well, I, I waited till this moment, till you were upset enough, because I think you're the only other guy that I know in this country that would consider to do polo. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, well, you're crazy. You could have just asked me. And he said, well, you needed to be under pressure. Stimulated. Yeah. So I said, Robert, what do you know about polo? He said, well, actually, I didn't tell you, but I'm also a polo professional. And uh, so if you want to play polo, I'll arrange it. We'll arrange it. And he took me to Spain. Mm. And um, I went and I fell in love with that. So I've done a lot of different types of equestrian riding right? mm. and ridden a lot of crazy horses, horses that you you, you should never get on. Mm. Um, but polo, the challenge of riding a horse and hitting a ball at the same time when you've got other people around you, it, it, it's, it's a different it's a different level mm. of equestrian riding, right? Most equestrian disciplines are not team-based. Mm. They're, they're just you yeah, yeah. and your and your horse. Mm. Um, and and that's how polo started for me. But when I, this um, is 2005, six, something like that. That you go to Spain and yeah. kind of get it. And then in 2008, you kind of... I went, so, and so you know, first of all, I had to go, and I went to Spain because, um, and I went to a place uh, in, in Sota Grande. They are probably the best polo club in Europe with the best trainers, right? Very expensive, of course, um, in, in terms of polo training. But I just went and I went and I went, a bit like the first time when I started to learn riding. Mm. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, and luckily... For some reason, I appeared to be talented at riding horses, right? Mm. So the polo was going well, faster than usual, um, in terms of my learning ability. Mm. And in 2008, um, or 2007 it actually was, um, I started to think about opening a polo club. But it was just an idea bubbling away, and then the baby came, and then suddenly there was no... uh, job for me because I decided not to have a job. And so I thought, well, I'll open the polo club. And at that time, there is no polo here. So in the Czech Republic, there was simply no polo. Mm. Absolutely no polo. Uh, I remember, I I think there was an interview with me in the the Czech press. Um, Why? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You're a a telco CEO. I mean, you want to do polo, you know. Mm. And um, so I had to explain why and uh, what the challenges of that sport are and what it meant for me. Mm. And there's a lot of things that it meant for me. It meant that I wanted to bring a new sport. Um, So actually, that's not true. I wanted to just open a club. Mm. And uh, I ended up starting a sport, which was way bigger than I expected it to be, okay? Because I hadn't realized that, I would have to actually promote the sport as well. Mm. 
Um, yeah, were, because there is no one else promoting it. No, there, no, there was no polo. Yeah, it's there, not like starting a football club and, you know, everybody knows football. But right. You, yeah. yeah. So, you know, you have to promote the sport. Mm. Um, you have to explain to people what it is and uh, w- what are their misconceptions? How does it work? Um, how does it ha- and there's a lot of things about polo, right? If uh, for 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 a start, people don't know how old the sport is, mm. right? It's two and a half thousand years old. Two and a half thousand. Let me, in in case listeners you didn't hear that, it's two and a half thousand years old. That's older than a bit. It's even older than me. Mm. You know, I I I only remember back two thousand years. Yeah. Um, and, and you told me a little bit about that. The, the, yeah, it, it started as something else. It wasn't a sport, right? Well, it started uh, back in Persia, mm. right? Um, as far as we can find out, it mm. started in Persia, in what is now Iran and Iraq. Mm. And uh, in those days, of course, there was no Christianity. There was no Islam, so it wasn't uh, religious based. It was. It was simply. Uh, 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 whoever had the best army controlled whatever Everything. they needed to yeah. control, right? And if you had, um, in, in order to have a better army, uh, some people felt you needed horses, right? Mm. And it was called cavalry, and the cavalry needed to be trained. And in order for them to learn how to ride a horse and uh, kill someone, right, with a sword on horseback, so literally you're holding the horse with one hand, your left hand maybe, uh, and actually, I should think a bit, a little bit even further back from that. You had horseback archers, right? So you know these guys had to fire bows and arrows without the holding the horse at all. Mm. So the horse had to be trained in a particular way. And uh, when you when you evolve that from from horseback archery to uh, fighting with a sword, right? And then you you kind of realize that maybe. Uh, all the guys you're throwing into that training exercise for cavalry are kind of getting hurt, mm. physically hurt with the swords. So maybe it'd be better to have a wooden sword. Mm. And then maybe it'd be better to turn it into a game. Mm. Uh, because if it's a game, it becomes a, a question of also having tactics, mm. right? And strategy. Mm. And so the objective became how to move a little, little wooden ball from one side of a field to another side of a field. Mm. And and that's how the polo, uh, in, in those days, polo wasn't called polo. It was called chogan. Mm. Okay? So but chogan the, is the original of Persian word for that. And the, and the, and I guess the, the, the point was, the, the, you're, you're actually in polo, right? You, you're actually controlling the horse with your legs. Well, you, the polo is probably the way that the horse moves today is probably quite different to then, mm. but it, it, not quite different. I probably more or less the same in a lot of ways. But the horse had to. Um, so, so if you've never had, if you're a listener and you've never had the the privilege of sitting on a polo pony. Uh, whether you oh, that's probably a very small fraction of the <laughs> listeners that haven't had that privilege. Yeah, uh, basically anyone listening, yes. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, yeah, that's why I'm here to change. Yeah. Uh, right? Everybody can come and try. But if you ever have the opportunity to sit on a polo pony um, and understand how it's been trained to move, mm-hmm. you'll be amazed, right? Mm-hmm. So it's trained to move with your body weight. It's trained to move with the pressure of your knees. It's trained to move even with... Uh, when I teach people, they're mm-hmm. often shocked when I just tell them, look straight ahead, but put your eyes to the right. The horse turns right mm-hmm. without any weight. So it... It's trained to move in a number of different ways according to what you need it to do. And the reason why we need that level of discipline within the horse is that you play polo at speed. Mm. Okay. So if if someone... Uh, so let's look a little bit about polo because it's my favorite thing, apart from my kids. Um it's very simple in a way, right? It, it's it's uh, football on horseback. Mm-hmm. You've got to get a ball into the opponent's goal. Mm-hmm. Right? And and the goal is is that the whole end line or is it is it an amark, amark? Right, so there are two goalposts. Mm. Yeah? Um, if we talk a little bit about the, the polo historically, um, po- so polo's started its life somehow in Persia, right? Mm-hmm. And it's come through all the way through to India, Mm. Uh, through various conquering factions where the British found it in the, in the 1870s. And the British army were, had uh, they colonized India and they found this little sport and um, they were quite fascinated by it as a way of teaching their cavalry to be mm. better. But of course, the sport didn't really have um, too many rules. Mm. You know, It just had one principle, score goals, mm. no matter what. Mm. And um, so the British refined it with rules like you can't kill on the way to score that goal and you mustn't smash an opponent in the head with your racket and stuff like this or the horse. You mustn't try to kill the other opponent's horse. The, hockey, so, the hockey people could learn a little bit from yeah, this. Yeah, so some people call polo hockey on horseback, yeah. right? Um, other people call it rugby on horseback because it's a full contact sport as mm. well. So if you if you if you're riding and you're going at between fifty to sixty kilometers an hour, right? You 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 don't have too much time to think about steering your horse because mm. you're too busy thinking about scoring a goal mm. and an opponent and hitting the ball and striking the ball, and you just need your horse to be uh, a part of you. So the best players in the world. Um, you know their riding ability is supreme, and if you had a, if they were going to tell you one thing about how to be good at polo, they'll just say ride, 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 ride all day, right until you know it's a part of you. Mm. Um, so that's that's the polo part which uh, came up, and so I started to do that, and I really. But, but yeah. listen, let me. Yeah. Sorry. Just, yeah. No. No. No problem. But so, just how many? How many are on each team? What's the, like, uh, if you just take the, the rules of your club, how sure. many are its team? Okay, so in the old days there were no rules, right? And um, people on each team was kind of countless. It could be mm. 400 on each mm. team, right? And um, then uh, it kind of got cut down uh, when you look at the way that it's played. So today the, uh, there's only one place, right, mm. where polo is played in the way that... It used to be played when the British discovered it, and that mm. is in the north of Pakistan. Mm. Okay, that is no rules polo. They still play no rules polo, and uh, it's fascinating to watch because there's a number of challenges. They're playing at 
a horrible elevation. So mm. there's a number of challenges for the horse to be super fit. Mm. They play with six players on each side. Mm. There are no rules. Okay, so you, you, you can do whatever you like with your mm. horse against your opponent to get that ball score. The British changed that to uh, limiting that. So let's talk about the polo field. The polo field, the polo field is huge. It's six times a classic football field. Okay, six times. Okay. Right? So in square meters, 44,000 square meters, something like that. That's right? a lot. It is a lot. And that's why you find... Um, that was one of the challenges I had starting polo in the center of Prague, right? To find that amount of space, never mind just for the horses to live. Mm. Uh, it's impossible. Um, so you have four players on each side in classical polo, and uh, they're numbered from one to four. Mm. And the number three is generally the captain. Uh, numbers Number four is usually the, the player with the most experience. Mm -hmm. He's the back player. So he stays at the back and he's more defensive. Then you have one and two, and they're running and gunning, attacking all the time, trying to get or receive long passes mm -hmm. from the four and the three to just score, mm. right? And uh, to ride around their opponents and uh, try to get. And then you have a lot of rules about the way that you can now interact with your opponent, uh, let's make it very simple. Imagine you're driving on a motorway mm. and you have a two-lane motorway. When you drive on that motorway at night and there are no cars, you can move your car from left to right as you wish. Mm. As soon as there's a second vehicle, you have to take care. Mm. So you, you can't just go from left to the right as you want. Yeah, yeah to, uh, to, to pass in the lane of the other horse and, and so right. on. Right. So when you have two players or more in a polo field, you, you have what are called these lanes or rights of way, and you can't cross players. You can't just run in front of a player. Like in the old days when you played football as a kid and you you know you were yeah, a kid, was, and everybody was for the right. ball was. It, it, Eleven, eleven, twenty-two kids run for one ball. Yeah. It, it's chaotic. You can't yeah. have eight players running on eight horses to mm. one ball, mm. right? I mean, it would just be a massacre. Mm. So you have rules that govern the way that they can get to that ball and how to get the ball. And how long is the game? So this is one of the things why I really got into polo, apart from the physical and the mental challenges. Um, it's hell of a lot longer than the 65 seconds I used to get for show jumping, right? Yeah. Uh, so there, there are a minimum of four periods going up to eight periods, depending on uh, where you are located in the world. So in Argentina... Um, they're playing sometimes up to eight periods, and each period is on average 7.5 minutes long. Mm. So there's a minimum of 7.5 minutes per period. And these these periods are called, in polo language, chakas, mm -hmm. right? So that's... That's the original... Uh, original word from India, mm. actually. Um, so even the word polo uh, was picked up by the British in India mm. because... The story goes that uh, it's the name of the wooden ball, mm. right? And um, so they oh they thought that was the name of the game, but it actually wasn't. Mm -hmm. And and chaka is um, a bastardized form of the word chaka, 
mm. which means time, time, mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. right? Literally in, in, in language. So they took that and they applied it as a form of time mm. in the game, mm. right? So you have these four periods, four chakras, and in between each chakra, you must rest uh, for two minutes. And then there's another important rule, which is that uh, no single horse can be played for two consecutive Chakras. periods, mm -hmm. right? So because, and you do the calculations and you work out the horses actually run around nine kilometers in seven minutes, seven mm -hmm. and a half minutes. Mm -hmm. And that's a hell of a lot at yeah, speed. Yeah, full speed, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and one of the other big things about polo ponies is uh or polo horses is that they are probably the supreme equine athletes right mm. because unlike racing horses who just have to run in one direction polo ponies have to run stop turn go back yeah they're run, very stop, agile right so mm. they they just have to they just do a different job and they have to keep doing that job for seven and a half minutes mm. um so you, you must change your horse. So um, everybody uh, at an official game is required to have a minimum of two horses. Mm -hmm. Sometimes some people have more. They take it as a tactical advantage. Um, and everything is about budget, right? Mm -hmm. So when you heard about polo from me for the first time, you had that typical reaction. But polo, it's only for snobs. Yeah, I, 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 I have it here on my paper. Polo is the game of the royals. Uh, that's yeah. the, in, in the eyes of us, yeah. the, the, yeah. the humans, you know? <laughs> the peasants. So for, uh, well... Is it? Yeah. It's for the royals. Uh, it's only for the royals. I, I think I mentioned that my mother was aristocracy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> now, uh, of course, it isn't, um, and in a way, it is. So, typically, in any culture mm. or any country, people who had horses um, were generally wealthier, mm. right? To have a horse, uh, even farmers got wealthy over time. Mm. Uh, even if you even if you wanted to be a snob and say, well, he works in the fields and uses his hands, and mm. but they did get wealthy over time. Uh, so there were so in order to get access to a horse to play play polo, how do you do that? Right, you either have money or you go find yourself a horse running mm. around. Mm. And in some countries like Argentina, that's possible, mm. right? So if you class, if you compare, sorry, if you compare Argentina mm. to other countries in Europe, there are a million horses running around Argentina for free, for free. Just, uh, wild, Just wild, wild horses. Wild horses, right? So in Argentina, polo is like football, right? Uh -huh. You just go, go grab a horse and you train it and you start to play it, right? In the West, polo, uh, sorry, horses are not like that, right? No. You, you have to go buy a horse. You can't mm. find a free horse, a wild horse. Uh, I guess you can in the States. You still have wild Mustangs. Um, and that's a whole different issue that they're trying to kill off. But anyway, um, so, so this is your primary thing, right? You need a horse. And mm -hmm. if you can get a horse... Um, uh, polo is for everybody. Now, in the past, polo wasn't for everybody because not everybody could get a horse and you were either in the military who provided you a horse at their cost or you came from a background where you had access to horses. Mm. And, and that's unfortunately part of uh, 
the historical aspect of colonial polo, mm-hmm. right? I, so one of the first big things, first big legends that we should should uh, explode is it polo is not a British sport. No, no, it's a... Right? Uh, a lot of people here meet me and say, you do polo. Oh, we thought it was invented by the British. No, it was invented a hell of a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And, and the British found it. The second thing is... Um, there are people in the world who are not royals playing polo. Mm. Yeah. And um, it's like, it's a sport. For me, it, 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 it's a sport. And everybody can play that sport. They just need to get a horse or borrow one of my horses. And I'm not the only polo club in the world that says uh, we have horses here, so you don't need to invest in a horse. You just need mm. to pay for the time or the use mm. of that horse mm. and my time, right? as a trainer, as a polo coach. So there's no reason why someone can't learn polo. Mm. And costs of polo have dramatically changed in the last 20 years, right? So Because of of people like you, I guess, that are yeah. making it available to anyone. Well, uh, you so let's talk a little bit about one of the one of the big rules in polo is that it's a handicapped sport, right? Uh-huh. Like, so, go- or like, kind of like, like golf. Like golf, but uh-huh. it's in reverse. So the more positive you are in polo, the better player you are, mm-hmm. right? So that creates a pyramid of polo, right? On the base of the pyramid are a lot of players with a very low handicap. Mm. And they'll, they're they happy to play that way, and they're quite happy, and this is the base, and it makes up the majority of polo players globally, mm. right? And on the top, you have the lucky ones who uh, were maybe sponsored by someone who saw some talent. Mm-hmm. And then you have uh, people who are very rich and they want to do that sport. So they have the financial means to make themselves better. Mm. And you have uh, the polo dynasties, um, by which I mean uh, breeders who've had polo breeding, ho- polo pony breeding, polo horse breeding operations mm. for, for generations, mm. and they play because it's in the family, it's a business for them. Mm. And uh, you have, uh, you know, I've had, so for, for if we take, for example, I've had people as old as 67 mm. learning from me uh, and as young as uh, 10. And if I let's say if I if I if I wanted to come to your stable not just to to shovel the shit but I wanted to play polo how how would that work what will that cost right so when you look at the the cost of a general um, so how how does how does it how does it work across most equestrian disciplines right you you go and you find if you want to do show jumping. Mm. You find uh, you find a a club, and uh, you look at the price list, and you go, "Oh, okay, that's fifty euros or whatever it is today." Mm. Um, that's the average price. Fifty euros is something you, uh, for an average riding lesson, mm-hmm. okay? And you look at a polo club, and you go, "Oh, it's a hundred euros." Mm. Why is it? Why is it double? It's more equipment, or so the reason, the explanation for that is that, uh, first of all, we're playing on a bigger field, so it's more intensive for the horse. Secondly, imagine that you came and I said, uh, let's teach you polo today, and I'm on a big field, and you you just wouldn't hear me. 
right, mm. on this six times a football field. So I need a horse. So now there are two horses because it's the only way it's going to work. Mm. Um, so Polo's unique in, the, in, in, in that sense that there's always two horses in play, the trainer's horse and your horse. Mm. And, it's, and that, that's normally the way that it has been taught in the past, mm. right? Today, you can have a polo lesson for this 50 or 60 euros, okay? Uh, but that's generally a group lesson. So in order to make it cost effective to mm. keep and maintain the horses. But when you look at um, a standard equestrian lesson, it's mm. very unlikely that you would also pay 50 euros for a private lesson, mm. right? You're mm. always in a group. Mm. So if you actually do the economics of that lesson, And, of course, being an ex-CRO, I do my polo in a kind of economical way as well, a financial way, right? So if you've paid 50 euros for a group lesson, mm. yeah, you're actually getting about 10 minutes of time from the instructor because he's got five other people to teach as well in that group. So you've actually paid 50 euros. You're, you're making a very good case, Navid. <laughs> Tell me the price. 100 it's, euros? No, it's 50 euros, my 50 price. 50 euros? Yeah. Yeah. And and what do I need to bring if I want to? Nothing. Nothing. And you, that's all the gear, and you could take I'm, in someone who never. Ninety uh, percent of the people I've taught have never ridden, which is even better. What the fuck? And uh, and they've never ridden in their lives. Um, and how how long is it for someone who starts? coming to you and, and playing polo until they can kind of, yeah, let's say, become a decent polo player? Yeah, every 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 beginner mm. asks that question, and my answer is very simple. It It's about the amount of effort you put in in terms of your training. Mm. Okay, so if you expect to be a polo player or good at any sport by doing it one hour a week, forget it. Mm. It will take you a long time. Mm. If you get into your polo uh, and you understand that you first of all need to uh, ride to really ride to be able to really ride it's this is a part of the sport which people underestimate mm. they look at the sport they see it on tv and they just think it's uh, sit on a horse and hit a ball mm. if it was like that it would be so just so easy for everybody but In terms of uh, answering your question, right, my recommendation is always to the beginners and the members of my club, uh, and they usually follow what I recommend or suggest, is they always come for a minimum of two hours mm. every session because it takes them about 20 minutes to unwind mentally from their job or whatever it is they've got on their mind to get in sync with the horse. Mm. Uh, so part of the lesson time is just spent getting them to really become a partner, right? Uh, when with I, the horse. With the horse. Mm. So there are, you know, what I, I, I call it a couple of teams in polo. There's not just the polo team. The first team is you and, and your horse, mm. okay? If this team isn't working, you can't help the rest of your team. Mm. Now, a lot of people come and they go, yeah, I, I want to just sit and hit the ball. And you explain to them or I explain to them like, okay, 
uh, I'll teach you how to swing and hit a ball. And you've hit it 50 meters if you're lucky, and now you can't make your horse get to that ball. Mm. So you've just given it away to, to the, the other op- side. Opposition, yeah. yeah. So that's why it's important to understand that you really need to understand how to ride. Mm. And when you can do that, um, you will literally become a much better player. Mm. Because what what that will allow you to do is to hit the ball a little bit more effortless, effortlessly mm. uh, without the stress of, uh, I need to hit this shot really, really well. And, and you will stop thinking about your balance and the horse and the horse speed and the speed at which you're going at. So, you know, I, it's very easy... Polo, in one sense, is very easy. I can take, uh, and I have taken people from companies, and they want to do a polo day. Mm. Uh, their employees have never sat on a horse, some of them. Mm. And the polo ponies are very forgiving. They're very easy. They uh, are happy to just walk. Mm. And they understand that someone is sitting on them that doesn't know how to drive the vehicle, mm. if you understand mm. me. Yeah. So polo ponies go into uh, what I call automatic mode. Mm-hmm. They just usually are waiting for you, and that's part of my role as a coach to teach you how to uh, ride. Okay, mm. I don't just mean sit on the horse, but what are the signals that you need to give the pony or the horse to move forward, mm. left or right? So you learn that. Uh, so they come and they don't have to worry about that because the horse will just walk. As soon as it sees a ball being hit, it'll walk towards the ball. Sometimes mm. some of them are more eager than the others and they kind of try to go there a little bit faster because uh, horses, uh, the polo ponies, uh, have their own personalities and some of them are extremely competitive. Mm. And they want to get to that ball And they faster. understand the game. The horse understands the, the ho- game. Sometimes the horses understand the game better than the beginner players. Yeah. So we have a horse. She's a great horse, Corteza. She's a Brazilian thoroughbred, and she's very fast. But she understands the basic rule of polo, which is that if you want to acquire the right to hit the ball, you must take out first your opponent from that lane mm. that I was talking about. Yeah. So what she'll do is she'll automatically go to the next to that horse next to her and she'll try to push the horse away mm. out of the lane. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately she loves it a little bit too much, a little bit aggressive. So yeah. she'll go to the horse and then she'll think, I've pushed that horse, yay, I'm the winner, and she'll forget to go to the ball. To the so ball, we, yeah. You know. Um, others, they just see the ball and they're going for it. Mm. Others, uh, they're like people. They have their personalities and yeah. they, they have their off days. So, But, um, um, but on this, like... Um, um, injuries. I mean, what what's the for a polo player? What's the most common injury? Is it to fall off the horse, or is it to be hit by another player, or or what's the? Actually, the most common injury is uh, tendonitis, uh-huh. the elbow, right? Okay. Because most people don't learn how to swing correctly, mm. and it's like tennis. If you don't perform with the arm well and mm. you're just trying to hit without technique, mm. you will injure your your tendon. Mm. Um, so we call it poloitis, of course, because we're polo players, but yeah. uh, everybody else in the world calls it tendonitis or tennis elbow. We call it polo elbow. 
So that's the most common injury, first of all. Then the second one is that beginners um, don't have good balance and the horses are trained to turn. Yeah, so you fast. fall off. So you just fall off. Mm. And um, just like in any equestrian discipline, depending on how you fall, mm. um, you can you can be okay or you, you could hurt yourself mm. badly. The other uh, thing is that... Uh, you could get uh, hit when you don't obey the rules of polo well because we have this thing in our right hand called a polo stick or polo mallet, uh, which gives us an extended reach, right, of over a meter and a half. So if you're, if you're not careful mm. and someone is swinging and you ride into the back of them... You could get it in your you face. You could get it in your face, mm. yeah. Um, so that sometimes happens. Uh, actually, the the better you are at polo, mm. the less accidents that happen. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So the the danger is it. Again, the, this analogy I use is uh, people learning to drive. Mm. If, if you're just learning to drive, you're more likely to be nervous, not know what you're doing and cause an accident. Mm. And it's the same in polo. Mm. So that's why it's very important to have a coach who has eyes in her head at uh, the back or his head and uh, can see everything sort of 360 degrees, never misses anything, is always looking for. And, you know, this is often mm. annoying to my beginners or members because how did you see that? No, because I have to. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I have to be sure that everybody's always safe. So the rules of polo are designed for two primary things. One is for the safety of the horse first, mm. okay, because you can't just swing a mallet. You might... My view on it is like this, Elmar. Ponies, horses, they didn't write to me saying, can you teach me how to play polo? Mm. Um, so it's my responsibility to take care of them. Mm -hmm. And everybody who sits on a horse has that responsibility. Uh, not to swing around wildly so they hit a horse. Mm. And if they hit a player, well, that player had a choice to come and play polo. Mm. And um, that is the consequence. And it's the same... In football, rugby, every, yeah, any sport. But the horse is not there by... Yeah, the horse didn't have a choice. Mm. And, uh, you know, you play... You, if you, it doesn't matter what you do, skiing. Uh, mm. uh, there's almost... There isn't a sport almost that I know of, um, perhaps chess, where you won't get injured physically yeah. at some stage. But how... And how, how have... You know, because I guess this was the first polo club in the Czech Republic, and I saw somewhere that you were called uh, the king of polo, <laughs> um, and uh, in in some media, how how has the, has uh, the nation here? How have, have the Czechs and and the people that live in the Czech Republic? How have they kind of received this sport? Is it popular, or or has it? Do you see a growth in it, or is it? Yeah, it's a very good question. So. It, it is growing. It's a slow growth. It, uh, it, mm. It's a very slow growth because the sport didn't exist here, mm. right, as far as most Czechs are concerned. Uh, expats have heard of the sport, of mm. course, and they're familiar with it, even if they've never played it. They're familiar enough to, have, to, to know that it's on horseback and uh, mm. people are running around. And that familiarity encourages them to at least try. Checks uh, are 
it, it's a cultural thing in my view. Um, they are very conservative. They are used to sitting on a horse and jumping. They are used to doing dressage. They are used to doing horse racing. Mm. Uh, watching polo for them is something looks very complicated. There's a lot to do. You have a lot of things to take care about. Mm. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is um, it's a it's a sad thing, but it it's true. Um, and it, and it's about your point of view. Some people would rather be, um, and I don't mean this in a bad way, please, anybody listening out there, uh, but would rather be a kind of member of something which is, even if they never achieve anything, a member of something, uh, as opposed to uh, a king in a little country, mm. if, you, if you understand what mm. I'm trying to get at, right? So... Uh, it's easy to be in the world of show jumping and to be among thousands of people, even though you're not recognized, mm. uh, because you know it's a larger community. It's a larger community, mm. right? And because of uh, there's this, then then there's back to that point you made earlier on, right? There is this misunderstanding of uh, how polo players are, mm. the perception of the sport, mm. um, and when you when you look at it 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 kind of seems reasonable but then it's about as reasonable as saying well i don't like japanese food have you tried it mm. no mm. well then it's not reasonable to have that no. um opinion mm. uh so what what is interesting for you is yes um i'm not i'm not sure if someone calls me the king of polo here but uh they have called me the father of Czech polo, Tatov Českého pola. And um, one of the funny things that happened to me on my polo journey, right, was uh, there I was back in 2009, you know, ego running, I'm, I've started polo. And uh, I, I happened to go to the uh, Hippological Museum Mm. In a place called Slatinani, and Slatinani is uh, it's just outside of Pardubice uh, uh, for the uh, for people, let's mm. say, who so want like to an know. hour hour from Prague. Yeah. But anyway, it's a famous uh, museum in, in for for history. And as I walked in, I was approached by a man one day as I walked in there, and he started waving at me and uh, uh, gesturing and asking me to follow him. And he took me to a room which was locked, mm. and he opened that room, and uh, I, 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 I was amazed. Inside that room was uh, or were polo cups, f uh, polo mallets, polo saddles, everything that you can imagine to do with polo, mm. and uh, and part of me, half of me, was like so happy. Mm. And half of me died because I wasn't the inventor of polo. Of polo in the Czech Republic. Right. So um, the fact is that there was a history of polo mm. in, in this country before it became the Czech Republic. Mm. And uh, at that time, I ran my polo club uh, outside of Padubice, uh, mm. let's say, um, and I ran it on the estates of a famous Czech noble family, not because they were noble, but because they simply had the facilities that I needed. Mm. And 
when I went to this museum, so so this this Czech noble family actually they're very famous for being around horses, mm. okay, and developing horses, and they uh, actually um, were responsible for the development of something the Czechs call the parfosni hun, which is uh, fox hunting, mm. okay. Because the Czech nobility used to follow whatever the English nobility did, so mm-hmm. they they were following their fox hunting. They brought racing, and they saw polo, and they brought polo uh, to to this uh, part of the world. And in fact, they started the first polo club in Vienna, Polo and mm-hmm. Right Club, it's mm-hmm. called, and um, it was. Uh, founded by three noble families at that time. One mm. was a Polish family, uh, one was a Hungarian noble family, and uh, the other was this Czech noble family. And they tried to uh, grow the sport, and then unfortunately there was um, the Second World War, mm. and then there was uh, the the advent of uh, the Russian invasion, and it all got hidden away. Everything got locked into this little room that uh, I was shown and forgotten about. And that's because the communists and and, uh, and the Nazis didn't want... Polo, yeah. Yeah, they, or royalty or anything associated exactly, with noble nobility. Ex- exactly. So at that so time, they closed the room and they opened it for Father Polo. They did, yeah. And I don't know if they've ever opened it again, which is a shame. But what I did was I captured that and mm. I, I, I made a little... Um, half book in, uh, in which is not complete in Czech and mm-hmm. it talks about the history of Czech polo so whenever I do an exhibition game here or I uh, get involved uh, I've been lucky enough that uh, you know some of the uh, districts of Prague uh, Prague 6 for example mm-hmm. I did a polo exhibition game uh, in a very famous park in Pruhonice, Pruhonice Park. Um, so I always have the I've made exhibits of these uh, Czech mm-hmm. uh, memorabilia pictures mm-hmm. and uh, explaining to them that uh, whilst they may have thought I started polo, it's true I did, but I restarted polo. Mm-hmm. Um, is really. The truth. But wouldn't it just to be better to be Father Polo and just you know kind of hide this, <laughs> take all the glory? Uh, well, it wouldn't be true. No, it just true. wouldn't be true. And no. you know, when when we have children, I think it's important that you set an example, right? Mm. And part of the reason why I did Polo was for that because um, that so. There's lots of reasons. One, yeah, because, actually, yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask you yeah. that. Why, why this route? And yeah. I, you yeah. told me something about this before, and I was yeah. very interested in it. So you know, back in 2008, we're having the second child, and uh, I don't want to go back to the corporate world, and I'm thinking how to escape that. And I think, and I'm thinking, um, hmm, I want to. I, why don't I do something which isn't you know combined with my passion? Mm. and uh, my passion being polo and why don't i do what i've always done which is uh break the mold right um because you know i i was talking to people friends of mine saying i want to do polo and they were all looking at me like i'm i'm insane and that it will never 
happen. Yeah, I thought that, I thought that when I reached out to you, but yeah, yes. that it can never happen. And mm-hmm. of course, nothing can ever happen if no one ever tries. No, right. So there was this going in my mind. Secondly, um, we we talked about it, right? You 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 talked about my early life, and so there were challenges that I had to face. And I've always been one for wanting to have a challenge, right? So the challenge now was to start a polo club, right? Mm. The other challenge that I personal challenge for me was um, my my thinking was um, there are well a shitload of CEOs that come and go, mm. and uh, and the right books about maybe zero point one percent of them. Maybe that's the legacy, <laughs> and that doesn't leave a legacy, right? Mm. So I wanted to uh, do something which would help my children to understand that. If you want to do something in life, mm. nothing can stop you. Mm. Nothing can stop you if you are determined enough to want to do that thing. And that that's it's not only the legacy of leaving the sport, but it's the fact that um, I hope that it's for them and in the inspiration of saying, even, even if they never, um, and both my boys play polo, of course, strangely mm. in the family, mm. get it for free. Mm. Um but even if they never continue to be professional, mm-hmm. hopefully they'll take that story and say, well, I want to be the world's, you know, I, I, there's no Czech Formula One driver. I want to be a Czech Formula One driver. I mm-hmm. want to be a Czech ac- astronaut. Mm-hmm. Um, something which says, yeah, you know, they, they, they tell us we can't do it, but dad showed us that if we want to do something, we can. So... There is there is that thing, you know, and um, do you think? Sorry, Navi, okay. do, um, like so, you're leaving behind the motivation for them. You you're yeah. showing you're leading, you're showing them an example, right? Right. That anything is possible. Exactly. Did your parents manage to leave that with you before they left? So, um, I think I, I mentioned the three things my dad told me. That mm. is a huge legacy that has driven me all my life. The, those are the three rules by basically mm. I live my life, right? Um, because I had this interview in the press saying I'm going to open a polo club and, and I felt this burden on me, mm. right? I'd said it publicly. You have to go and do it. I have to go and do it, <laughs> right? I didn't want to be that guy that said I'm going to do something and then didn't do it, yeah? Yeah. So that was going through. Um, There's a couple of things, you know, even though I had a short time with my parents, Mm. uh, I I was the lucky one. I'll tell you why I was lucky, because I was the firstborn son and my mother spoiled me Mm. completely. Mm. And uh, to the point where, you know, you mentioned your friend had a nickname. My nickname was Little Prince, Mm. right? There was nothing that wasn't good enough. There was nothing that... I, I was so spoiled mm. that there, there was nothing that I couldn't go, ah, I want it, and I, and I wouldn't get it. Mm. And then I went from not getting anything mm. unless I went to get it. Mm. Um, so that's the kind of legacy they left me, right? Mm. If you understand mm. what I'm saying. to say Navid I mean you've had quite an interesting journey and I know that you know we could have probably talked more I mean you had a challenging childhood um, and yeah the first 
born to a immigrant family, or you know, the let's say the first generation of a, of, a, of immigration, challenging thing to be, and and um, yeah, I mean, you could have stayed in the business world and probably had a nice time, but you went on this polo journey, which is quite fascinating. Um, and yeah, to leave something behind and, and show a good example to your your children. Um, if we if we think back a thousand years from now, will there be the guy who started polo in the Czech Republic? Will there be like a, it all started with this guy and this would be a huge sport? I'm sure it'll be, uh, it all started with this guy. Yeah. I don't think it'll be a huge sport. Polo, polo is a very difficult sport to make huge. But uh, it could be bigger here than it is, though. I mean, there is still a lot of... There's a huge room for growth mm. in, in here, and it's kind of the mission I'm on, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm a kind of, you know, I run the club, but I'm still an ambassador for the sport. Mm. I <clears throat> um, have people coming to me from the UK for training, from mm. France, uh, from Germany. Mm. Um, but I'd love to have, uh, and, and now that traction is happening, um, more Czech people. And I think that the other problem uh, and it has been that, uh, and, it, and it probably wasn't um, something which I had taken into my mind into consideration, right? So we are in the Czech Republic, mm. and yet my website is in English. Yeah. And so, of course, it's a barrier for yeah, people. Yeah, it is. And uh, they're nervous to call. Mm. And um, so now I've, uh, you know, got a Czech website going. I conduct uh, lessons in Czech mm. as well as English mm. for people. And, and now we get more Czech people coming yeah. because, you know, they call and it's not, uh, yes, hello, it's a... Dobry den. Dobry den. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so they're much more comfortable. And it just, you know, it was a, it's a silly thing. It's a small thing. Mm. Um, because you think, Polo, you think, right. Um, yeah, it has a certain cost. Mm. It, it, so maybe a certain group of people will come and they will already be speaking English, mm. right? And actually... Uh, you've got to keep track of the economic pace, right? So Czechs have also improved their lifestyle. It doesn't mean that they're speaking English more. No, no, and and, and, and even if, I mean, unfortunately, even though a lot of people here speak English, they are not necessarily comfortable speaking English. Right. And I, I mean, it's funny because, you know, I have my parents both, uh, uh, yeah, 70 and older, and, and uh, they, they have never... I've never wouldn't say that they speak great English, but they've never been shy of using it, and I think that's something that you see here. People are a little bit more reserved, so it's yeah, it's definitely a barrier for them, which will probably remain for some time. Um, we are kind of coming to the end. Just wanted to ask you. So, if people want to know more, where should they look? What where where is the first Starting point. You have a website. Uh, if they want to know more about polo. Uh, yeah, and your polo club. Yeah, so I think the simplest way is just to Google uh, Czech polo. Mm -hmm. And my website will turn up. 
and, immediately. And your web page is? Uh, and the web page is uh, gilpolo.com. G-I-L-L. G-I-L-L-P-O-L-O. Dot com. Dot com, yeah. And then uh, I guess there's a Facebook page as well. Yes, yeah, so, uh, we're on you know all the social media, so you'll find us on Instagram and Twitter and uh, Facebook, of course. Okay, yeah. that's cool. Um, and is there anything particular that you're working on now that is kind of up and coming? I mean, you, you mentioned that that uh, the book about the memorabilia. Are you working on some projects like this? Any publication or anything like that? Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I just um, so of course, uh, Polo. It, it, it's it's my work, it's my life. Um, but I have to do a lot more. I uh, am driven to do a lot more, mm. right? So um, I have, uh, you know, created a an equestrian site for polo equipment, for example. Mm -hmm. I, I do all the web stuff myself. I tend to, uh, <clears throat> because of my father's business, which was uh, actually ended up being clothes designing, designing clothes and and, and uh, a fashion business, right? Mm -hmm. So I always had this um, thing. It's in, in the, it's in the family somehow. Yeah, somehow. So I, mm. any, anything you see, uh, on the website I've designed, right? So, so you're designing equipment and I, clothing for not the equipment but the clothing, okay. right? So I I I do the graphics, I do the design, I I pretty much and I'm happy with uh, learning stuff, right? Yeah. So having to learn how to use Photoshop or uh, Shopify or uh, understand how to integrate payments. So I'm still a technical guy as well, yeah. right? Um then the other things that I do is I do uh, business consulting for companies. So um, still doing that management consultancy, mm -hmm. right? Helping startups uh, to get better in the way that they do whatever they need to do mm -hmm. to be better. And sometimes they, uh, a lot of the time they hear, uh, you know, about how how they could do better in a certain way because they're not working as a team. And then actually Polo helps with that, yeah. right? Because you can explain them how you can work as a team uh, and you need to delegate, not just be the one who wants to be the goal scorer all the time. Mm -hmm. But uh, so Everybody they, has a role. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, actually Polo really facilitates a lot of team building mm -hmm. um, for companies too. And then, um, yeah, I, I think if there's one other thing... Um, I would like to do is uh, create a virtual reality environment for Polo. Mm. Okay, so I'm speaking to one company uh, that does that, and uh, it's going to be very complicated, but the point would be that you or anybody could experience the horse, um, and it's from a training perspective, mm. right? So if 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 uh, just like VR is supposed to be, if you can train someone enough in VR yeah, to then do something, easier to put them in the real life, right? Mm. So that that's the that's the purpose of that project. It will take a number of years to get that done mm. because it takes a lot of cameras and a lot of recording and and 
and a lot of programming and uh, you know uh, it's not it's not a financially um, opportunistic program so it's not that someone wants to come and invest in me and uh, help me uh, to uh, do yeah. that <laughs> you're um, definitely on a niche there yeah. so there's that and then um, yeah there's uh, and then of course uh, my boys that uh, are growing up um, mm. Uh, the younger one is uh, also getting into the world of polo and improving, and but I see polo as a way of also not not just uh, being a good sportsman, but actually uh, you become a better leader because as you as you change your role within the team of polo mm. from the number one position to maybe being a captain, you start to understand how to manage people and motivate people to want to score mm. um, in a way which is not just uh, shouting at them, saying, go do that, but mm. they have to really learn. Because, you know, you, you're 12, you're captaining a, a polo team, someone's 40, they're probably not going to be used to a 12-year-old kid shouting at them no. to do. So mm. it actually, actually helps youngsters. It could... It, it my kid in this uh, example, but it could be any any children uh, from any family. They would uh, if they would be uh, proficient in their polo, they would actually start to manage the team and manage older people, right? And you learn how to do that. Mm. So there's all of that going on. And then um, what else? There's um, I don't know. There's the, there's uh, there's uh, the internet song. There's a polo song. Yeah, you, you have you have million so, things going. So yeah, yeah. so we could sit here all night, uh, yeah. I, but. But the main thing is the polo, and it kind of everything else builds around that. And, exactly. and people should definitely come and visit you, check out the webpage. And I, I, I advise, I mean, I've been following your social media. I, there's a lot of nice stuff there, very informative. And it's, I don't think that anybody who's listening to this could have guessed that he could come and try something like this for less than 100 euros. And I guess, you know, companies are coming, you know, for team buildings and stuff like that. So it's it's definitely, it's it's there, it's available, it's affordable. And uh, yeah, I think... I think it's, you know, we just have to take into account right now that no one's coming almost. Oh, no, but that's... COVID, that's, a, right? yeah, that's but let's hope this is a temporary thing. Um, um, but ev everybody should try at least once, mm -hmm. right? And if you continue fantastic if you don't that's your choice yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly it's like you said it's uh, someone who says i don't eat japanese food and then you ask them have you tried no <laughs> yeah. but uh uh yeah guys um, the show you need to follow the show so that you never miss an episode um the web page also the facebook page sorry is the bunker how the hell did we end up here mm. and then i have an instagram account that is called the Bunker Prague or Bunker Prague. I'm not sure you'll find it. It's just some bullshit stuff. And my Twitter and my personal Instagram is Midlife Crisis Warrior. And uh, thanks to the sponsor, Alfred Jobs and the Old Bar Prague. And yeah, if you're listening, uh, give a review, tell your friends, share the show. And uh, Navid, the Prince of Polo, <laughs> thanks for coming. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for having me, and uh, I hope that I get to turn the tables and interview you, and how the hell did you get here? I will see I about that. I think that will be a very we interesting do, story. Do that in the staples when we're shoveling some so, shit together. All you listeners out there, you know, just keep writing to me, telling me you want Alma to tell his story. I will see about that. Okay, guys, see you. 
Thank you very much, guys. Thanks right. all for listening.